Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by Mykesha Anderson-Jones, the Global Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Millbank, based in New York. This is about appreciating that whatever the differences are, are actually strengths or experiences and unique experiences that can come together in a really good way. But it takes work, it takes effort. Let's get to it. Mike, Keisha, thanks so much for taking the time to get together today. Absolutely. Appreciate the invitation. And belated happy anniversary now that you've been at Millbank for just over one year. Yeah, one year and I think two weeks or so. It's been a good one. So you've had a wonderful professional journey. You've been a lawyer in private practice, a lawyer in-house at a major pharmaceutical corporation. You were at American Express for a number of years, where eventually you became the vice president for global inclusion and diversity. And then you've come to Millbank. And in, in a lot of that, I know when we've talked, you've, you've talked about connecting people, passion, and purpose. Absolutely. What does that mean to you? Why do you say that? Oh, my goodness. And thank you for calling my career a wonderful one. I think it is as well. So appreciate you, you giving me that shout out. Uh, the people part is perhaps the real thread that runs through everything that I do, everything that I love to do. And I'm a lover of people. I study people. Maybe that was why I was a psych major. My mom actually is a sociologist and so was also very much involved with people and culture. And I think when you find the thing that makes you tick, you follow it. And that's the passion piece. And so as part of my work and in my personal life, I do try to connect those three all the time. So now that you've got your first year well under your belt here at Millbank, what are some of the things you're proud about? I'm proud about a lot. Proud of the organization for really uh, leaning into having me enroll and embracing the work that we're doing. Very excited and proud uh, about how we have moved forward regarding our global DNI learning. And so we have some spicy and exciting things coming your way in just a few months. Proud of the awards that we've won, but but not for the sake of the awards themselves, but because of the recognition of the importance of the work that we're doing as a collected DEI team, DEI committee, Women's Initiative Committee, and organization as a whole, certainly with, with our partners involved. Very proud of our 100% with the HRC, the Human Rights Campaign. So in the year that you've been here, obviously the firm has doubled down on efforts it's had going back to 1992. I know we've uh, had our first diversity committee was formed in 1993. We joined some other companies that year, like Microsoft and Apple, as being the first Wall Street law firm to offer same-sex health benefits. And that's been nearly 30 years. And yet in the last year since you've come, we've gone up in the diversity rankings for the American lawyer from number 30 to number 17. How should DEI progress be measured? in a firm or any company? Oh, that is such a complex question. It should be measured from where the company or the organization is, meaning every institution has its own DE&I journey, diversity, equity, inclusion journey. And so the journey of, of another is not necessarily going to work for you. The culture of another is likely not your organization's culture. And so there needs to be time to do a bit of a deep dive and an assessment about where you are, and then a determination about where, as an organization, you wish to be. And I think that is how you do it. So let's break those things apart, because diversity, inclusion, and, and equity, of course, are not the same thing. Diversity, you 
let people in the room, inclusion, you give them a seat at the table, equity, perhaps you actually listen to what they have to say and everyone's voices are, are heard. How do you think those are different as far as how a, a firm or a company can achieve those goals? So I'd like to, if we may, take one step back. I, I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion a little bit differently than how you shared them. And I know those were generalizations, but I have a different generalization. I, I often talk about food. I love to eat as well. I didn't say that in, in, in my people, passion, and purpose. And But I really think of DEI in terms of a salad. It's, it's a simple, simplest thing with uh, diversity being what you have within the salad. You have your lettuce, whether it's arugula or rocket or romaine or butter, whatever it is as the spinach, as the base. And then you have all the various toppings. The inclusion piece is really about taking all those ingredients um, and mixing them together in a way that you get a really full and robust flavor. But the equity piece is interesting, Alan. You know, if you really like tomatoes, I would give you more tomatoes. Um, if you didn't like tomatoes at all, or we're allergic to tomatoes, I wouldn't give you any tomatoes. And really the equity piece in terms of a law firm or other organization is about giving people what they need in the way and at the time that they need it. And so when you go back to the original question, how, again, that's a really complicated question, that assessment piece, taking stock of where the organization is today, process, culture, people, unpacking why you do the, the things that you do and also the ways in which you do the things that you do and figuring out, is that the best way? So that's really, I think, the how. And bringing data into that is also important. Yeah, I want to come back to data in a, in a minute because I think that it, that is important. You know, it's funny, I'm, when I hear you say culture and I hear you talk about food analogies, I'm mindful of opening up a fresh carton of yogurt and it all looks white on top. And it's because you can't see the fruit that's at the bottom. And when you stir it up, it's, it's mixed, but you can still see what's in there and you've got a whole lot more flavor. <laughs> well, by the way, I don't like those yogurts. I have to tell you, I don't like the glop and glop. <laughs> I like the ones that already come pre-mixed. Pre-mixed. Everything pre is really blended. And maybe that's the maybe that's the story for my life. Maybe yeah. you just told me I need to think about yogurt a bit more. And here you're holding the spoon, I think. <laughs> exactly. So when you look at data and you look at metrics, there's a tendency... And I think in not just in DEI, but in ESG more broadly in uh, a lot of areas where the things we measure are the things that are easy to measure, which does not necessarily mean that the things that matter the most. But what metrics while you're doing that matter to you most in DEI? So I think about representation and the measurements around representation. So promotion, retention, recognizing that that data is going to be dynamic and there are going to be ebbs and flows across representation anyway. So I'm looking at race and ethnicity, gender and orientation. But sometimes I'm looking at simple things like participation and attendance, measuring return on investment. But even beyond the return on investment, it may also be trying to find ways to measure the value or the interest in something. So whether that's a conversation with somebody who may come to an organization, or we are actually looking at speed of promotion or rate of promotion, or are folks leaving or coming uh, to the organization more quickly than others? Those are all great uh, data points. One of the things that I think is really important when you're looking at the data, however, is to remember that it is not always the loudest voice or the highest number that's the answer because when you're talking about DEI journeys you're often also looking at smaller groups of people and because you're looking at smaller groups of people the ebbs and flow adding one 
person to a group of talent or the loss of one person to a group of talent can make a huge difference. So there has to be a story or a narrative that goes along with the data. It's not only about the data, but it's a recognition that data drives decisions. And then what's the narrative that you can tell with that data? And then a bit of it is perhaps less scientific, which is what's the feeling? What's the experience? What are you hearing in your conversations with people? Yeah. And fundamentally, when you talk about that, it's, you know, language is so important. I think, for example, that we as a law firm don't talk about customers because a customer is a transaction. We talk about clients because that's a relationship. At the most senior levels are partners and partners are what? They have fiduciary duties to each other. What Judge, later Justice, you know, Benjamin Cardozo called this punctilio of honor that's most sensitive, this high level of duty to each other. So when you listen to people's stories and you integrate them into the broader story of the institution and of the communities and the clients we serve, how do people feel safe telling their stories? I would say they feel safe where they are in a room or in a space where there is trust, when they are in a room and they're in a space where they actually have, are able to share their opinion, they have a voice and are comfortable making mistakes or comfortable saying something that is uncomfortable comfortable that there aren't going to be repercussions when they say it, comfortable being able to share their perspective, which may not be commonplace in that room. But I think it it always comes back to trust and perhaps likability. And you get to likability or relationship through the establishment of trust. Can I work with you, make a mistake or do incredible work? And then how do we move ahead in both of those circumstances? Is it really the same? And what kind of training works to move beyond just, for example, pointing out implicit bias or what microaggressions are or what our you know, employer obligations are under the law for non-discrimination? What moves to that greater level of trust and empathy in an organization? I would say, by the way, th- those trainings, I like to call them learnings, but those trainings or learnings are really foundational or fundamental because I think they at least give people the tools to learn that there are words that describe behaviors, words that describe actions, words that describe X, Y, and Z. And there's also data behind it. And it's not new and new age. It's 30, 40, 50, 60, 100, however many years old. Honestly, I think that on top of that, once you have the words or you have the tools, there has to be a willingness to engage in at least considering that the perspective of somebody else is not wrong. It's not bad. It's not, it's, it's just their perspective and that it has value because they've shared it. It may be different than yours. It may be different than an experience that you've had, but the willingness to listen and to be respectful of it helps to build trust, helps to build relationship. The ability to find some commonality across difference, I think is the next piece and is an important piece in guiding that conversation. And we mentioned a little bit earlier, then moving to the ability to share of yourself and wanting to hear from others and being curious of others. I think when you put all of that together on top of that foundational piece or that lexicon, that's where you get trust through experience, through working together, and it makes an impact. But moving backwards, you know, from power and promotion back to retention. And before that, of course, recruiting. One of the questions I see come up a lot more in recruiting now than it did five or 10 years ago is it's not assimilation, it's authenticity. It's not how do I fit into this firm? It's how can I be my authentic self here? How Will I be respected and valued 
if I'm if I bring all of me to the office. Mm -hmm. It's funny you say that. Yes, I agree with you. I hear that. I believe it. But I always have a little bit of a caveat there, which is around bringing one's whole self. I do think that that requires a little bit of fleshing out. We all still have to realize that we're we're in a in a professional setting, in a work environment. And I, I would not wish for people to misunderstand what bringing their whole self means. It means not having to code switch. It means not having to tamp down an opinion. But it may also mean that you need to couch a conversation with more data or couch a conversation with a different type of narrative or be aware of different personality types or folks' ways of learning and understanding while bringing your perspective your opinion, your facts, whatever your knowledge, whatever it is, but also recognizing that the person on the other side may learn a different way, may respond a different way. And so I do think there's a little bit of balance there. I think one of the ways to give people that sense of a safe space in order to be themselves, uh, are we've, we, for example, we have affinity groups. And an affinity group gives a safe space for people with a shared identity to explore and celebrate not just the identity, but also ways in which they may have demands on the organization or you know, what are the issues that may be blocking opportunities for, for progress and development and promotion? Is there a difference between building communities and building community where you have a broader organization where people can also cross outside of those groups to learn from each other? I think that they are different. When I think about Millbank, I think of the community um, called Millbank. Who are we as a family? Who are we as an organization? And I recognize that we are an organization. We are a law firm. And so our primary uh, focus is to our clients. Our obligations are to our clients. And we are a community of people, literally from all over the globe, with very, very different um, experiences that we bring to bear that should have a positive impact on the ways in which we work. So as it relates to affinity groups themselves, I absolutely also believe that there are uh, sort of subpopulations or smaller families or smaller communities within the organization, whether that's based on practice group, whether that's based on affinity group. Again, you hear the word group come up over and over again, um, but there is a common thread that links and connects all of those. And again, that's the people. And what do the people bring to each one of those organizations? There's the ability for folks who may not immediately see themselves as part of a particular community to be connected by the fact that we're all here and we're within one law firm called Millbank. And so being curious, being an ally, heck, becoming a friend to someone at any other part, uh, within any other part of the organization, I think, helps to build the community at Millbank, but it also supports the smaller communities within the organization as well. I'm glad you mentioned allies. And I have a question about that, because obviously having people in their own silos exploring their own safe spaces is not the same thing as actually manifestly, with authenticity, changing a culture of, of any corporation or any, any firm. What's the difference between an authentic ally and performative allyship? So the performative ally is perhaps, you know, you hear the first part, which is perform. It's a bit of a performance. I suspect the individuals on who are engaging in performative allyship, and I'm not supposed to be using the definition in the definition, but I suspect that they mean well, but there probably isn't any particular benefit to the things that they're doing. There are perhaps moments in time. There are perhaps moments in time along with masses of people doing something in that exact time, and then there's no real benefit to it. There may actually be longer-term detriment if someone is doing the wrong thing. 
Say more about that. How is it, if it's only performative, how does that re- how does that reinforce that systemic problem that you're trying to cure? I'm going to use an example, which I don't know if it's a great one, but but over the last few years, remember when after the George Floyd murder, there were organizations just putting up sort of black screens with with nothing else. I would say that there were many who appreciated seeing that allyship, that symbol, that symbolism. But then after that black screen on such and such a day, the organizations went back to business as usual. There was no discussion within the organization. There was no support of an external organization. There may not have been any courageous conversations. There was no training. There, there, there was nothing. It, it literally life, you know, in many of those instances went right back to, to business as usual. So it was almost like his life being lost was just a, a blip on the screen. And then folks just moved along as if it never happened. And I think that that, that, that is a missed opportunity. But also, I think that's a classic definition of, of being performative. I'm hearing a lack of self-awareness there. And as you do something for how it might appear, it's reputational perhaps in the short term, but there's no substance to it. Yes, I think it's that it's la- it lacks the substance. And, and again, I'm not suggesting that the intent wasn't there to do something good. I just think that what perhaps was missing was the, the longer term planning about how to actually make sustainable and positive impact. And there are many other examples. It doesn't have to be around race or gender or orientation or something in the environment. There are many, many, many examples. But just doing that one thing once with no other thought or time spent in terms of developing next steps three, six, 12, 18 months out feels like a missed opportunity. And I think that is where performative allyship comes into play, which is different than true allyship or I like to call it advocacy, where you are speaking up and speaking out in whatever way that you can, whether it's in the moment, after the moment, pulling somebody aside to say, hey, you know, maybe you might want to think about couching this part of a conversation differently. Or, hey, have you also thought about inviting Alan into this conversation? Or, hey, Alan, that was a great idea. I'm not sure that everybody heard it when you said it. Do you want to say it again? These don't need to be Herculean efforts, irrespective of the topic, but they are sometimes course correcting, sustaining, thoughtful, helpful beyond just one snapshot in time on a particular day that has no longer term impact. Yeah, it's really interesting. As you know, I participated in our diversity mentorship program. And one of the things that I find fascinating about that, it's not just that the associates who are from diverse groups across the firm that are participating in that uh, as mentees, it's not just that they have responsibility to kind of dictate the nature of the relationship. It's not just on the mentor to do it. It's not just that they have outside executive coaching in addition to the internal roles, but it's how the mentors and mentees are paired it's not one size fits all. In some cases, it may be someone from a similar group who is a role model. In others, it may be someone from a completely different group, maybe someone who's more privileged, who gets the ability to develop that one-on-one relationship where there are opportunities with frequency to develop better habits of professional development and communication. That's all very true. And the matching of mentees and mentors is I would say both science and magic all at the same time are science and luck. We certainly are thinking about practice groups. We are thinking about 
Uh, what are the benefits of having a mentor in a practice group? And what could be the chilling effect of having your mentor be in a practice group? We're thinking about personality and personality types. Are folks particularly introverted? Are they extroverted, wordy and loquacious like I am? You know, what might that right mix be? And this year, for the first time, we actually offered to the mentees or to the associates the opportunity to give us their choice. What is their preference? Yes, I'd rather have a a mentor who's in my practice group or no, because we've seen it work really well both ways. And so even though we didn't say you are guaranteed the mentor of your choosing or the type of mentor um, that you've selected, we did take it into consideration when we were making those matches. A lot of what you're talking about involves intentionality. And the reasons that a firm will in- embark on this, it's, you know, partly, of course, there's the, the classic business case, right? Because diverse teams make better decisions and serve their clients better because diversity, when it's embraced by an organization, tends to lead to better retention, more diverse viewpoints internally as well as externally, and, and just better business outcomes. You also get more engaged employees. But there's another element to it, and that's the moral one. Because it speaks to the values of an organization. Probably that's hard to quantify, but there's a sense of like doing the right thing. Has that last one become important, do you think, to companies and firms? Or is it just, no, that's really not important. It's all economics. One of the benefits of having a mission, a vision, a purpose, not just as a statement, not just as a thing, not just in a performative way, but the mission, the vision, the purpose, things that you can anchor to, things that you can galvanize your entire community around is important. And you can use that, whether it's mission, vision, purpose, you can use that as part of your leadership training. You can use that when you discuss the ways of working, not just what the work is that you're doing, but how it should be done. I would say that it allows people to create common vernacular, common conversation, common elements. And you can use that to look at behaviors and activities and actions and how people are performing individually or as groups. I I actually think it's incredibly strong and powerful, especially if, like DEI, it is a part of everything that the organization is doing. Not that it's just a tagline, not that it's sort of one time a year do we hear it, but are there themes that come up and that are measured throughout the year around whether it's the mission, the vision, the purpose, or all of them? So as a chief DEI officer of you know a global law firm, and obviously these issues are different in different markets, different countries, but you have oversight for everything. How do you ensure that there's a DEI lens through which the wider range of partnership decisions are made? It's incredibly complicated and you speak to it. You have nuances across geography. You have nuances across practice group. You have folks with very different experiences. And and, and while you're all partners, uh, you don't lead in the same way. So I like to unpack how we do what we do. That's really looking at process. That's really trying to understand what's the rationale behind what we do and can we do what we do even better than we already do? Because we know things are working, we know they work very, very well. But how do we make the transition from very well to phenomenal or to excellent all of the time? And are we also making insu- making sure that we are bringing folks along on that journey with us? Yeah, you mentioned journeys, you know, and of course, obviously, we're talking here about diversity in all its form. And people have had different journeys to get here 
whether it's overcoming discrimination, and we're talking about ability, about race and ethnicity, about gender, about gender variance, about sexual orientation. Neurodiversity. I mean, there are now the right the, the, the definition is probably widening, or at least the recognition that the definition broad dimensions of diversity um, are not so narrow. So we're not doing this, of course, in a vacuum. I want to take you back for a second to 1866, <laughs> right? more than 150 years ago. I look great, don't I? We've aged well. You look great too, by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. So in 1866, Millbank is founded. And it's founded, by the way, by someone whose name was Anderson, like yes, you. Yes, I, I know. Uh, I, I know this. Uh-huh. No similarity bias there. No similarity bias at all. <laughs> <laughs> he was the son of a white Protestant minister from New York City. So Anderson, Adams, and Young, they, they formed this, this law firm in 1866 near the corner of Wall Street and Nassau Street. In the same year, we have the Memphis Massacre, where starting from this kerfluffle between white Irish police and black U.S. Army soldiers who are trying to maintain the security, we end up three days later with 46 black residents of Memphis murdered, with more than 90 homes and four churches and 12 schools burnt to the ground with rapes. It's a horrible, horrible situation. And it's one of the things that prompts Congress finally, just six weeks later, to pass the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, giving ex-slaves the rights of citizenship and guaranteeing to everybody that states cannot deprive us of life, liberty, property without due process, and that we all get equal protection of the laws, which sounds wonderful. So things don't happen in a vacuum. No, the light switch doesn't just click on in the moment, and then all of a sudden there's change. So now you're uh, looking at a law firm, and you're looking at the journeys and the histories that brought people to where we are, and trying to determine where we will go. Because we're forward-looking now. We're future-looking. We're not resting on laurels. We're trying to be nimble and adaptable and set the bar very, very high for excellence in giving employees satisfaction and delivering top client service. How do you do that in a broader society which is still grappling with systemic racism and, and social justice issues and does not have a lot of consensus around them? You're asking me to solve world peace, hunger, poverty, discrimination all at once. You develop a plan, quite frankly. You develop a plan, a short, a medium, a long-range plan. You do it in partnership with the folks within the organization, you, the partners. You include voices from throughout the organization, regions, roles, role types, and you try to develop something that is going to be sustainable and that is in many ways flexible enough to allow for nuance, flexible enough to allow for a change in priority based on what is actually happening in the world. But I think you have to stay true to what is the North Star. And the North Star for us is around excellence and growth, growth as a firm, growth for the folks who are within the firm, growth for our clients, growth for the communities outside. You know, really what you just described is the, I would say, polarization that's happening outside of our organization and in the world today. You know, pick a country, any country that just polarized, whether it's party, political parties or otherwise. I am of the belief that humans are complicated and complex and we can hold multiple beliefs and, and do multiple things at the same time. And sometimes two things can be true at the same time. And so because of that, building out that longer range plan and recognizing that it, at year two or three, it may actually shapeshift because of what's happening externally. 
is important, but getting buy-in from folks within our organization or any organization is really very important because it is not just my voice that should be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It should be all of our voices talking about that with the recognition that it may mean different things or our focus may be different at different times. And of course, progress is not smooth. It sometimes it lurches. No, it is not. But you've set in place institutional structures and practices and lines of communication that allow you to take advantage of that when it comes. Absolutely. We had a guest speaker in not too long ago from whom you know very well because you both graduated from Smith in 1993. I'm thinking of Deborah Archer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, who's now the, the president of the ACLU. And I've heard her talk about this. And one of the things she says is, you know, there's this idea that people think you just get a diverse group of people in the room and you sit back and watch the magic happen. <laughs> but it's really, you can't because you're moving from representation to true equity and inclusion is hard work. Yeah. And it really, it's the I in the inclusion. That's the special sauce. It's the I. I could fit 10 people in a room that holds 12 and the 10 could be completely different in every way possible. And to your point, if they're just sitting there looking at each other, that's not it. I mean, really, the I, the inclusion piece is really you're talking about. You're talking about how do you lead teams and how do you function as a team? And back to your word community, how do you create a community of folks who may appear on their face to be different or in some part of their ba you know, background to be different? What are the common threads? This is where you pull values, mission, purpose. This is part of that conversation. This is about appreciating that whatever the differences are, are actually strengths or experiences and unique experiences that can come together in a really good way. But it takes work. It takes effort. Yeah. It's not just the, the different individuals or groups. It's the, those common threads that bind and that's the hard work to discover and, and build them. Thank you so much, by the way, for doing this hard work, but not for doing it alone, but for leading everyone else you know, down, that, down that path. This conversation could go for hours and I wish it would, but thank you so much for taking the time today, Mikeisha, to, to talk about these important issues. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com. <laughs>